Last week we opened up with this concept that God is not distant. And what we talked about was God is not a God who created the world and spun it like a top and sits back and hopes for good outcomes and doesn't really know what's going to happen next. Um, we, we believe that that view would be a, an unbiblical view of God, and it would also present itself to be a very small God. And, and so one of the things that we kind of covered was how important it is to see God as highly involved in our lives and highly um, moving in our lives in such a way that he ordains and he plans, um, he foreknew, and he is sovereign and in control over all things. And, and so that's the view of Scripture. That is a view that we would consistently teach here at Integrity, that God is a sovereign God in control of all things. And honestly, I don't know how you read the Bible and, and land anywhere else. Uh, when you go through the Old and New Testament, you're going to see that consistent, that God is a sovereign God who is in control of all things. So since he is that way, um, what we covered last week is how we respond to him is primary in our lives, how we react to when the gospel is proclaimed in our lives, how we respond to that has to be everything to us. How we listen and how we engage in the gospel and how we respond to the gospel is primary. And so we we don't believe in neutrality. We don't think you should have a neutral response. We think that you should be engaged in the gospel. If he's a God who's involved and in our lives, and we respond to him. And so it's important that we respond to him biblically, right? If we want to respond to him, we, we ought to respond biblically. And so what we saw in Luke's gospel last week in chapter 18, Jesus is saying that Jerusalem is near. If you look at the very end of 17, he talks about how Jerusalem is near. And what he's saying is the cross is near. He knows that he is going to die. And so what Jesus does is he introduces several different responses to what's about to happen. Jesus is going to die. The kingdom of God is near. The gospel will be explained more clearly and more profoundly than it ever has before at this point. And so he lays out several responses. The first thing that he does in in chapter 18 is he takes this parable of of a woman who goes to an unjust judge. And this woman is a widow who's in great need. And and she goes to this judge and she's asking him for um, him to take care of her and, and, and her to have a fair plea. And so she consistently goes to this unjust judge. And Jesus talked about how that's like prayer and how we consistently plead for God to, to just show up and God to, to move and God to uh, awaken our hearts to the gospel. And so that is how we pray. And so that's a response to the gospel. Uh, the second thing that you saw was a parable of a tax collector and a parable of a Pharisee. And, and they're, they're going into a, a temple and they're both praying. And one of the things that you saw in, in the two different types of prayers, one, the Pharisee was thankful that he's not like other men. He's like, God, I'm thankful that I'm not like those clowns. I'm thankful that I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. And he doesn't have this humility that you need. And so the tax collector had this great humility and said, God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. So the other response to the gospel was just this humility that needs to happen when we see the gospel. Uh, the third thing is that you saw was as Jesus is telling these parables, and this is all in Luke 18, um, you have 
children that are running up or parents taking their children to Jesus and even bringing infants to him that he would touch them and disciples were angry and they were upset and Jesus rebuked them and he said we're all to come to God like little children in other words we're to come to God like we are utterly dependent on him so we see prayer is a response to the gospel Uh, we see humility is a response to the gospel and we see us coming to him like children and saying you're in control, I'm not, you you're, uh, have authority over all things, I don't, I give my life to you, We're, I'm utterly dependent on you. And so this week, we have this fourth response, and, and, and to me, this is a very important thing that we see and grab this morning and how we respond um, to the gospel. So Luke 18, verse 18, we'll jump right in. So as he's talking about the kingdom of God and how we come to him as children, this is what he says. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now there's a couple of things wrong with this question, all right? And I want to unpack this so you can grab what's happening here. Um, Throughout the gospels, you would often see the heart of a person in how they just address Jesus, how they would communicate to Jesus in the very, and, and the name that they even give Jesus would give us insight on the person's heart. Now, I want you to notice that he says, good teacher. And so if you think back to uh, the Gospels, there, there's a story in John 3, which is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. John 3 is about this character named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is this, um, who would have been a well-known Jewish leader. And, and Nicodemus is very prideful in how he wants to interact with Jesus because he knows that Jesus is kind of a big deal at this point. And so he goes to Jesus in the middle of the night and he, so that he cannot be seen by anyone else. And, and when he goes, he knows that Jesus has done all these miracles and all these supernatural things. And the way that Nicodemus interacts with Jesus is he starts by calling him this one word. He says, Rabbi, for I know that you are a good teacher. And then he talks about what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, you have to be born again. And he's totally confused by that phrase, born again. Nicodemus says, oh, does that mean I need to go back in my mother's womb? And Jesus is like, no, creep, that's, you know, you totally missed it. No, you have to be born of the Spirit of God. You have to be given a new heart in Christ, in me. And, and so he didn't get that concept of what it meant to be born again. And we see Nicodemus' heart because of the very phrase that he calls Jesus, he says, good teacher. Let me show you another one, all right? Jesus is, this is a well-known story. Um, Jesus is at the uh, final supper, his last supper with his 12 disciples. And Jesus looks down the table and he says, one of you will betray me. And so let me just show you what takes place here. I'm going to read Matthew 26, um, starting verse 20. It says this, when it was evening, he was reclined at the table with the 12 And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after the other, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that 
man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Is it I, good teacher? And there's a difference between what the disciples said who were all across this table. They're saying, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And then it gets down to Judas who betrayed him. He says, is it I, teacher? Is it I, rabbi? And so the the heart is showing us in the way that they even identify who he is. Because often the disciples would say, you are Lord. And often those Pharisees or those who would betray him or those who don't really get him, they say, good teacher. See the difference? It's a massive difference. And so here you see this man who's communicating to Jesus, this rich young ruler. He goes up to him and he doesn't say, hey, Lord, hey, God. He says, hey, good teacher, good teacher. What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And so you have to see him as Lord and not just good teacher. And by the way, if he's not Lord, he is a horrific teacher. He's cruel and sick if he's not Lord because everything he taught was about him being Lord. I and the Father are one. I am one with the Father. All that is his is mine. He's constantly bringing truth to himself and saying, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes into the Father except through me. He's pointing himself as I am God. That is why he was crucified. It wasn't because he was just a a good guy. He was crucified because he said, I am God. And so if you, you can't, you can't take these apart. He's either, good te- he's either Lord or he is a complete liar. He's a false teacher. So you can't call him good teacher and not call him Lord. And so what you see in someone who just says that, they just don't get him. Their heart is not engaged into who he really is. You have to see him as Lord. And so you see this rich young ruler right out of the gate. His heart is revealed in the way that he addresses Jesus. The second thing he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, he's saying, what is the secret prayer that I need to pray to inherit eternal life? Uh, What religious pilgrimage must I take to inherit uh, eternal life? Which church or synagogue or temple should I attend to inherit eternal life? Um, which, who do I need to write the paycheck out to in order to inherit eternal life? And so you have this rich young ruler who would have had so many things at his disposal and would have been able to snap his fingers and get what he wants. And he's asking Jesus, what must I do? And this is a foundational problem in understanding the gospel because he thinks the gospel is about doing. And if you hear anything that we ever say every single week at Integrity, the gospel is not about doing. It's not. If, if you think the gospel is about what must I do, you've missed the gospel. It's not about that. But, but see, this guy thinks this is it. And so what Jesus does is he goes right after this guy's heart. This is what he says, verse 19. 
And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, when you read that, it seems as if Jesus is just contradicting what I just said about him not being one with God. What he is actually doing here, Jesus is not disclaiming that. Rather, he is going after this man's heart. He knew that this man had a flippant way of viewing him. He knew this man's heart. He did not see Jesus as God. And so what he's saying is, God is the only one that is good. God is your standard for goodness. He is your standard. And so I think this is where every person needs to land if we really want to grab the gospel. When I share the gospel, I always try to start with creation. God created the world. God is sovereign over all things. He's the the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the alpha. He's the omega. And then I go to the fall, which basically lands of everyone is not good. All right? That's it. That's a foundational piece of grabbing and understanding the gospel. You are not good. It, from the very, your very birth, you're not good. Uh, you, you have in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who's one of the most wealthiest, wisest per- people in, on the face of the earth. He has hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines and hundreds of houses for his wives and concubines. And in the middle of Ecclesiastes. He has all this wealth and all this stuff. And he says this. He says, see this alone I found. This is Ecclesiastes 7.29. See this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So he said, after all these things that I've been given, and after all the people that I've met and I've uh, been ruler over, this is what I recognize. God and creation made the world perfect, but man massively messed it up. If you look in other texts, you see this constant picture of God is looking over the world and he doesn't see one righteous man. There's not one righteous man. And so every person has to start there in order to see the gospel. If you go to Look at modern day psychologists and sociologists. They would tell you this. Man is basically good. We're basically good. And the problem is we just haven't looked deep inside of ourselves to find real truth, a real purpose, a real value. And so once we do that, then we'll have a reason to live. If we look inside of us, the problem is we just haven't looked hard enough inside here. And that's counter gospel because the gospel says, listen, if you look deeper inside of yourself, you're going to see that you are from birth a God hater. You are at war with God. That's who you are as a result of the fall of man. I mean, Romans 5, 12 says this, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so that sin spread to all men because all have what? All have sinned. So at birth, we have this problem because of the fall that we are born at war with God. So we are. But here's the good news in Romans. I'm going to jump up to verse 8 of chapter 5 of Romans. It says this. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were still what? Sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the bad news is we're born with this problem. We're at war with God. But the good news is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. The wrath of God that, would, that we deserve to be poured out on us because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, has now been placed on Jesus when he died on the cross for us. And it went to the grave. And when he rose from the grave, he conquered the penalty of Satan's sin and, and death. And so we have this reconciliation that's been offered to us. And so for us to really grab the weightiness of the cross, we have to grab how we are totally and utterly depraved from birth, that we are dead in our sins, and we have no hope to save ourselves. We're lost. Lost. And Christ is the reconciler. So part of you grabbing the goodness of the gospel is realizing how sinful we are. So if you hear teaching that says that you're basically good and you need God to just give you a little bit of extra adrenaline, run. All right? Run. I mean, there's preaching all over Christian television, Christian radio. You know, this is my Bible. I will never refer to it again. You know, that whole deal where you hear this kind of talk where it's just... They don't ever talk about sin. They don't ever talk about how sinful we are and how dead we are without Christ. What they are actually doing is diminishing the beauty and the glory of the cross. Anytime we say that we're decent people and we just need to be saved a little bit, that's when we diminish the love that Jesus offered us. The love of Jesus is he makes us alive. We're dead. He didn't pass out on the cross. He died on the cross. All right? He died. So it's, it's, it goes along with grabbing how totally depraved we are and how utterly dependent we are on him and grabbing then the weightiness of what Jesus has actually done for those who would believe. Verse 20, it says this. But when he heard these things... He became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Wait a minute. That's not verse 20. Going up. Going up. I'm going to get that one later. Uh, verse 20 says this. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. It says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing that you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. 
Now, if you listen to this guy, it's very obvious here what he's saying. He's saying, I have followed the law. I have obeyed the law. He says, I've not committed adultery. Apparently, he did not hear what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27, that if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. He didn't get the heart issue behind what the law was showing. He did not get the heart. He said, I've obeyed this part. I've not had sex with a woman outside of marriage. I've committed, I've not committed, I've never stolen my life. I've, I've obeyed all of the law, and I've always done it. I've done it since my youth. I've, I've stayed with it. But it's very interesting to me that if he's done that, then why in the world is he asking Jesus this question? It's because he knows that there is something lacking in the law. He knows that it will not sustain him. It will not give him eternal life. He needs something more. And he did not realize that this was a heart issue. And Jesus tells him, sell all you have. That's what you lack. Sell all that you have. Now, this is not a blanket statement for every single Christian, all right? He's not saying this as a blanket statement. If you want to get to heaven, sell all that you have. Give all your money to the poor. And I know this because in the very next chapter, when Jesus addresses Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus is a wee little man, wee little man was he, you know, climbed up in the sycamore tree. That guy, he talks to Zacchaeus, who is also a wealthy man. And what he does with Zacchaeus, he says, sell half of what you have and give it to the poor. So this can't be a blanket statement that we can say across the board, he wants every single person to sell all that you have, and that is how you gain access to the eternal life. No, he's speaking directly to this particular man's heart, and this particular man, listen to this, his idol What he loves more than everything else, this is what he is attacking. Jesus is not dogging rich people here. I feel so bad for people who are wealthy who come to church and we, you know, when they read through scripture and it's like, rich people suck, and then they have to go in the parking lot and they go, beep, beep, you know, with their BMW and they're like, oh, I hope no one saw me, you know, and it's just a kind of an awkward deal. It's not that. It's not that. Jesus. It's not that God hates rich people. It's not that God loves poor people. It's not that. Let me show you why it's that this way. Look, look in verse 23. He says this. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those, for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier... For a camel to go to the eye of a needle than for a rich person to in, in, enter the kingdom of God. Um, you, you may have heard it said that uh, the, the eye of the camel and the needle and that whole story is like uh, there's actually a gate in Jerusalem that is the eye and its camel had to get down on its knees to get through. Listen, that analogy, that story that people say is not true. It's not a biblical You cannot find that anywhere in scripture. Okay, It's not historically accurate. Do, what he's saying is this, exactly the way that we would interpret it today. It is impossible for this large mammoth creature to get through this tiny, tiny, almost microscopic hole. That is what he's saying. He's saying it is very, 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 it's impossible. That's what he's saying. It's impossible for this to happen. And so 
He didn't just say rich people don't get to heaven, which by the way is good news because we're rich because we live in America. Seriously. And we're the richest, we're one of the richest countries in the world. If you would have brought the rich man and the rich young ruler and you would have brought him to today and you asked him to come into your home, he would be blown away at all of the amenities that you have. Hey, let's watch Netflix. What's Netflix? Oh, it's like a, you can watch millions of movies by doing nothing. You can watch 24 all seasons. You don't have to go rent it. I want food. Oh, that's no problem. We can get a high school student to bring us pizza. What's pizza? It's just tons and tons of stuff on one round thing, and it's amazing. And then, oh, well, you're bored? Well, let's go drive somewhere. What's, you know, we've got to go to bed. It's getting dark. Well, we have electricity. We can have lights. We can stay up all night. We can play Xbox. We can play Wii. If you don't even have to play real tennis, we can play fake tennis. <laughs> like you have all of these things here at our access. By doing, in one spot, we can do so many things. And he would be, what? Does it make any sense? Yes, because we're crazy rich. One of our biggest problems is gluttony. We have so much food that we can consume all day long. That's a problem. We have that much food that we can do that. I'm I'm one of the problems, right? I'm one of the problems. So he's going after this issue and saying, listen, it's hard for a rich person because... Rich people have idols. So there's rich people in the Bible that love Jesus. You have Lydia, who Apostle Paul starts his church in Philippi. One of his first people in the core group was a wealthy woman. I prayed for years for a wealthy woman to show up in our church. And it still hasn't happened. But um, that would be a generous giver. This is how Paul plants the church. He gets this wealthy woman in the fashion industry. She's like Meryl Streep in Dead World's Prada. And she's, you know, supporting this church. And so it, it's not that God hates. Actually, God uses, uses rich people for his glory. But what he's going after, again, is the heart. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He knows that. He's going after the heart. Rich people, and the problem I think is in the USA, all of us rich people, is that we have so many idols that there's no room for the gospel in our lives. And Jesus is attacking this. He's like, listen, you have major idolatry Because you bring up this issue of, I've obeyed the law, but you love your money so much that it's ultimately what brings you security. And you're just looking for that last check to get you to heaven, even though you've not surrendered this to God. That's idolatry. I think sometimes we think idols are like bad things, but idols are not so much bad things. Idols idols can be good things that become God things, which make them bad things. Because we love those things more than we love God. And this is what Jesus is going after. You love this more than you love the kingdom of God and eternal life. And so Jesus lays this out. It actually says Matthew's gospel says that he became sad. And uh, Luke's gospel says he became sad. Matthew's gospel actually says that he became sad and he walked away. He walked away. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear where I have to kill my idol to come to you. I want to know that I can love this as equal as I love you or love this as more and still keep you around. 
That's not how that works. That's not how you have a relationship with God. You don't keep an idol and love it more than you love him. He's attacking his idolatry. Very key that you see that. Look at how the disciples respond. It says this. Verse 26. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? Uh, It's ironic what Matthew says about it. Matthew 19, it says this. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And they said, who can be saved? It was the disciples who said this. It was the disciples. It says that they were astonished at what Jesus said. And here's why this was likely the case. Um, People had an understanding, and this is based out of the Old Testament. Um, This is based out of Deuteronomy 28. I'll just read 1 through 3. It says this. He's talking to Israel here. He says, if you, are, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, your God, being careful to do all of his commandments that I command you today, the Lord, your God, will set you high above all nations. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord, your God. So he's saying, listen, if, if, if you do what I say, I am going to bless you. I am going to make you wealthy. I am going to make you healthy. And this is what the disciples heard and understood because this was in the law. If you do this, then I will do this. I will follow through with this promise. And it's applied to the Israelites. And so they understood this concept of if I obey you, then you are going to respond in this way. You're going to do these things for me. And, and so... You cannot read the Bible like that because we're in a new covenant. We're with Christ now. And so our response to him is like, he doesn't do things because we do them because we've done nothing. He's done all the work. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it's finished, it's done. He died on, in our place for our sins and he conquered the, the, the penalty of our sin. And so it's all through Jesus. Everything's through Jesus now. So he doesn't react to our obedience in that way. There's consequences to sin. There's joy in obedience. But it's not as if you go to church all, every Sunday for the next six months, your bank account will be full. That is not true. If you do to this, go to this Bible study, you are going to marry a super sweet gal who loves Jesus. It's not true. It's not true. If you take communion and if you pray, you will, you will never have suffering in your life. Not true. Here's why that's not true. Um, the rest of the Bible. I mean, you look at disciples and as soon as they follow Jesus, everything goes wrong for them. Everything. I mean, I could give you lists of all the people who d- were so devoted to the gospel after Christ's ascension. They all died because they were all killed. All of them. There's one who wasn't, I think he was boiled until his skin almost melted off. So except for him. So it it doesn't go well. It's not how this works. It's not a, if I do this, then you'll do this. And so here's what happens. When we interpret the Bible this way, if we look at the Bible this way, we, we start to personalize it in this way. Like, if I do this, then God will do this. Right now, for example... With July 1st, July 4th, celebrating July 4th, right now, in Greenville, I'll just, I can make it that specific. A pastor is going through 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, who are called by my name, 
will humble themselves if they pray and they seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will get, forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And they take that and they say, I know it's for the Israelites, but it applies to America, right? If Americans will just pray and seek God, he'll heal America. We won't have any more problems or terrorist attacks, right? And we do that with the Bible. The Bible is not personalized to you. It's important that you don't read it that way. He's not saying if we humble ourselves, and and then the Lee Greenwood song comes on, you know? After that, right? Got it? Patriotic song? Detroit down to Houston. Uh, And so we, we, we do that with the Bible, and we think everything in the Bible is about us. He's talking to the Israelites, and the way that the, the disciples even understood how the kingdom of God works was through the lenses of the old covenant. And they thought, you know what? If, he, if, he, if I do these good things, then God is going to give me health. If I do these good things, God is going to give me wealth. And what Jesus is saying, no. Actually, I want you to sell your possessions for the sake of the gospel so that you can make much of me and that is how you inherit eternal life. You give him everything. And the disciples were going, what? Well, that doesn't make sense. So he's breaking through the idolatry. And this is one of my grave concerns with the prosperity gospel. Saying that the main purpose of God saving you is so that he can make you healthy and wealthy. I can't think of anything that's more counter-biblical than that idea. Because you don't see it anywhere else in the Bible, they try to play on words like this. He's going to heal you if you do this thing. No, to the new covenant, to Christ, he wants everything. And here's the thing about Christ that's so unbelievable. And this is what we'll see in verse 27 through 30. Let's just grab that. It says, but he said, what is impossible with men is impossible with God. In other words, man cannot save himself through good works and riches. Only God can penetrate the heart of a man. And then he says this, and Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is none who's left his house or his wives or his brothers or his parents or his children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come in eternal life. And what he's describing here to his disciples and what Jesus wants us to hear today is this idea that Christ is bigger than your stuff. He is to be treasured above all Things And so what it looks like is this. If you receive him and you know him and you've repented and you believe in the gospel, that means you don't, you're open-handed with everything that this world has to offer you. So you're not after health and wealth. You're after him. And what that means is this. If you're after him and you're chasing him and he's stirring your affections and you love him above all things, that means when your health fails, you will glorify him in your sickness. That when your money starts to die down, you will glorify him in your poverty. That means if you get a raise, you will glorify him in your wealth. 
because he's better than all of those things. He's like, they will receive rewards in this age, in this age to come. He's saying, Christ is better. I am better, is what he's saying. So this is the beauty of the gospel. Nothing excites me more than to read books like Tortured for Christ by Richard Richard Warmbrandt, one of the great missionaries of our time, and he goes overseas in Romania, and he's persecuted and beaten horribly in every sense of the way. He sees men lose their families, lose their children, and at the end of all of that, they still praise Christ with their lips because they realize it's not about my health, it's not about my wealth, it's not about my stuff. It's about me finding hope, longing, love, purpose, everything under one name, under one person, and that person is Jesus. So if you're trying to find joy in idolatry, it's not that God is this kind of killjoy who just wants to take you away from the things that you like. It's that God knows that he's better, and so he wants you to kill and fight your idols because he's better than those things. He knows that those things will not sustain you. They will not sustain you. So man, I'm not after your happiness. Happiness can come with the things that God brings in our lives and the little enjoyments that we have, but they will not sustain us. Joy in Christ is the only thing that will sustain you specifically when you face trials, tribulations, great suffering. And so... Here's a response that Jesus wants from us when we are confronted with the gospel. That our reaction would not be, what must I do? But it would be us recognizing what Christ has already done. That we've been bought with a price and that our response to him is, God, I'm nothing, you're everything. I have nothing, it's all yours. Here's my life. Take it. It's yours. So if you're trying to earn your salvation, you will never find it. If you have met Jesus and you've repented of your sins and you believe in the gospel, you're set free. That means you don't have to keep working to earn it. When Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees what Jesus has already done. And when he sees that Jesus has already done, it's finished. It's done. So you don't have to keep earning it. But you are going to obey Because the Spirit of God lives in you and He's always bringing you to Christ. If you are a person who's got idols that you are afraid to give over to Him, I just want to challenge you this morning. You might be in the status of the rich young ruler who does not want to give it up. And only the Spirit of God could allow you to even fight that. So that's my prayer this morning. Maybe you're not even a believer and you just love the things of the world more than you love God. And maybe the, the spirit of God just needs to break you this morning. And maybe this, this wor- the word here is penetrating your heart and challenging you. And I, I just want to call you to respond to him this morning. If you're a believer and you just keep fighting with that same idol, maybe that's something that you just have to confess and deal with and say, listen, I've got this major idolatry in my life that I just don't want to give up, but I know it's just keeping me from growing in the gospel in the way that I know that God wants me to. And so, are, are you the one who's looking at God in the way of saying, you're just a good teacher. Thanks for this good little message. 
Or do you actually look at him in the way that his disciples did and they called him Lord? If he's Savior, he's Lord. Those two things are not to be separated. If Jesus saves you, that means he's Lord over your life. He, he controls your life. He grows you in the gospel. And if you don't see that in your life, he's not your Lord. He's just a good teacher. So what you need to do is say, God, I plead with you to become my Lord and my Savior. God, save me from my sin. You repent and you believe in the gospel. It's the attitude of your heart pleading with God to save you. So this morning, I, my desire would be that we respond by casting out, asking the Lord to cast out our idols so that we can see him and the beauty of the gospel clearly. Can we do that this morning? Let's pray.